Together in this space, we're going to turn our attention to the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. We're going to be in John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 13 and then follow on through verse 22. Again, the Gospel of John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, you can follow along with the words on the screen as we together as the people of God hear the word of God. And it reads, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out, get get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus said had spoken the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Lord, we meet with you in this space, in this time, gathered around your holy word. What a gift it is to hear from you, to know you, to encounter you in your very word amongst our sisters and brothers. Lord, in this space and time, I ask that you would help us to come to know you more and more and know who we are in you. Lord, open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear from you. Open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word, our hearts that we would feel its power. Then in response, I ask that you would equip us as your people with open hands to offer grace and love, to offer Jesus to the world. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Well, I know not everybody grew up in uh, the church. 
but for those of you that, that grew up in the church, and, and, and I don't mean the kind of contemporary Christian American church, not, not kind of like a covenant uh, experience, but grew up in the church. You know what I'm talking about? Like grew up in a, a traditional church. Uh, I grew up all across the South, in tradi- uh, the South Texas, that is, in traditional churches, and there were rules in church. Do you know any of those rules in church? Rule number one, you're going to be uncomfortable because you're going to dress in your Sunday best. Amen? You're going to have to put on clothes, especially I remember as a child, my mom making me wear clothes that I would not choose for myself ever. Right? And there, there might be some of you today that are wearing your Sunday best to God be the glory. Uh, but I remember as a child feeling like I had been penalized, punished for going to church. Rule number one, you had to be uncomfortable in church. Rule number two was you had to be quiet in church. I have three sisters. My dad was a pastor, so my mom sat with my two, uh, two sisters on one side, uh, my youngest sister and me on the other side, and she had a long reach. And if we were ever out of line, boy, we would catch it on the ear, right? We, we knew that if we were too loud because you were quiet in church, and, and there was no way you were having coffee. I see you with coffee. There was no way you were having coffee in church. There were no do- donuts. You could have donuts in the fellowship hall, right? But that wasn't coming in the sanctuary. And there was no running in church anywhere in church, not even the fellowship hall. And there was like this weird like communal feel to the fellowship of the churches I grew up in. And it was that if any kid was seen running, they were the, 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 the kid of the whole church because any adult that saw a kid running could just like reach up and grab them by the scruff of their neck and say, no running, right? And that was just part of the culture. There was also another thing that's real interesting. There was, there was rules about where you could go and could not go in the sanctuary. Particularly, we had these kneelers across the front and then one step up, there was a little, a little uh, area where the pastors would move one by one, serving communion down the row. And then there were a few steps up, there was an uh, altar, and we knew that you were not allowed to go past the kneelers. That little communion serving spot, past that was sacred. And no parent had to tell anyone to not go past that spot because you knew you would be smited if you did, like there was a holy reverence to what took place up in that area. And so I, I, I hear about these rules, and, and, and I think that there is something that, that's, that's right about those. This, it's a reverence for the house of the Lord, and, and it's an appropriation of this word that we hear from Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples, their recollection of the psalm where it says that zeal for the house of the Lord will consume him, the servant, the Savior, Jesus However, Jesus is offering a reframing for us about what the the structure and the rules are for the house of the Lord. And he's inviting us to, to, to enter into this total reframing. It takes intentionality, though, for us to engage fully in it. And so I want us to, to see where this falls in the larger scale of what John is teaching. This is the very first of uh, 
uh, of encounters we have with Jesus in Jerusalem in the Gospel of John. And it's very early in his ministry. Remember, this is John chapter 2. What's fascinating about that is if we were in Luke's gospel in chapter 2, we're just now hearing about Jesus' birth. And in the gospel of John, by the time we're in chapter 2, he's already in Jerusalem at the Passover. And so uh, when we orient in John at the very beginning, we have uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. We have Jesus there from the very beginning, one with the Father in all of creation. And then we move uh, to uh, Jesus' encounter with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is baptizing, and John the Baptist testifies to all that would hear that this is the one, this one Jesus is the one that he was preparing the way for. And then we have uh, an encounter with an invitation to some disciples, come and see, come and be a part of this ministry, and Jesus builds disciples. And then we have uh, the favorite miracle for most of the people of God. In John, we have Jesus turning water into wine. And then after Jesus turns water into wine, we have this story in John 2.13. And here's the verse that, that helps us understand for For the people of God who've heard the story of Jesus, for anyone that's read uh, any of the Gospels in entirety, we know that something resonates deeply from this very beginning passage. Verse 13, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There are three things that stick out to me in that first line that are all kind of leaning me into. There's something more going on here if we would just open our eyes to it. The first is that it's the Passover. The second that it's Jerusalem. And the third is that Jesus went up. There's this movement going up. So it's the Passover. Jesus uh, is, is coming on pilgrimage from the Galilee to Jerusalem. He is doing what, what most Jews would do for the Passover. Even today, if you go to Jerusalem on the Passover, it will be packed and crowded because it is a journey that is a part of who they are as the people of God. And... We also know that Jesus went to Jerusalem on the Passover in other instances. Actually, in every instance in Jesus' recorded ministry, including Jesus going to the Passover at the Last Supper. Jesus going to Jerusalem as he rides in on the foal of on a donkey and as he enters in and they shout hosanna and as he meets with his disciples around that holy table and he shares communion with them for the first time and says this is my body this is my blood as he's betrayed and as he's crucified that was at the passover and so from the very beginning in John chapter 2 and at the conclusion of the gospel of John we have Jesus going for the Passover going to Jerusalem. This is a connection that resonates, and then we hear that he went up, went up to Jerusalem. What's interesting is Jesus actually travels from north to south. So if you were thinking geographically, you would say he went down to Jerusalem. 
But he went up to Jerusalem. He went up for a few different reasons. One is because in Jerusalem, the temple mount and the city of Jerusalem is built at the convergence of valleys. And so you go, unless you come from the due north, which is pretty hard to do, you go down the valley and you literally come up into the city. In fact, you come up to the temple mount and it's a part of the Jewish heritage to know that there's an ascent to what is taking place when you go to the temple, when you go into Jerusalem. But there's also this resonance for us. When we know that Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover, just as he did in those last days before the crucifixion and resurrection, we also know that Jesus climbed the hill of Calvary. We know that he was lifted up on the cross and he went up on our behalf to take on that which we could not accomplish on our own so that we would have salvation in him from that very first verse this this engagement with Jesus's journey to Jerusalem on the Passover as he went up we are to connect to something bigger is happening here so how do we how do we engage that, engage this text, knowing that it is more. Well, the first thing that we might want to do is to, is to, to understand that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes to the temple. And, uh, and he sees in the temple all that would be expected. Now, for us, we're like, that's odd. There are cows, there are sheep, and there are doves. Uh, what? Whenever I came on Sunday morning to Covenant, there wasn't a a, a menagerie of farm animals out there in the front lawn, right? Well, this would have been natural. They would have, Jesus would have totally expected cattle, sheep, and doves to be there because this was a celebration of the Passover that required certain sacrifices to be made on behalf of the people to to celebrate God's redemptive work, liberating work amongst the people. To celebrate Passover is to celebrate uh, the lamb which, which protects the blood of the lamb, which protects the people of God when they're in Egypt as they are about to be liberated into the, into the wilderness and ultimately the promise of God that they wipe the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And, and then the, the, cattles, the cattle, it's a part of the designated ritual of the Passover doves for those who are more impoverished. And so when Jesus encounters these animals, it's totally normal. Then when he encounters the money changers, we might be like, look, we didn't have like any, any currency exchange at Covenant this morning. That would have been normal because people came from all over who were Jewish to celebrate Passover together from long distances. And it means two things. One, they didn't bring animals with them for the sacrifices because those animals needed to be pure and unblemished. So rather than risk their sacrificial animals being damaged, being impure along the way, they would purchase the animals when they arrived in Jerusalem. That makes sense. And they came from all over, which means they had national currency of every sort. And so when they came to Jerusalem on an annual basis, they would offer a temple tax. And the temple tax had to be in a specific currency. And so uh, they would bring their, their resources and they would exchange them so that they could offer their tax in that currency. So when Jesus walks in, 
As I guarantee, Jesus had walked in the temple on many, many Passovers before. He saw what he expected to see. There was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing new or different. Everything we see described is as you would expect. But then we have this interesting moment. Jesus, it says, then almost certainly removes himself from amongst the crowd. After he sees what's there, it says he makes a whip out of cords. Now, oftentimes whenever I have had my spiritual imagination in on this moment, and I'm tied specifically with the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I I imagine this as as kind of an extemporaneous moment of righteous indignation. I I know of the, the tables being turned over, so I imagine Jesus walks in, he sees something that he knows does not fit, and he just in, in righteous uh, anger, flips over tables. Maybe that's how, how you've seen this. But in John's gospel, it shows a different vision. It shows particular intentionality, pause, and understanding that something more is going on because he makes a whip out of cords. Now, when we hear whip, we think Indiana Jones, right? Like, like, like it's... It's big and it's there to cause damage. It's, uh, it's there to, to win the fight. Wrong image. Not leather, not fabric. The, the word cords there is more specifically tied to the word reeds, which would have been found probably in the bedding for the animals just scattered on the floor of the temple court. So he bent over and took pieces of an animal's bed and turned it into a whip. This whip not designed for destruction, but this whip designed for authority. Because a whip out of cords like that would have been what uh, the, the herders of the animals would have used, and the animals would have been used to the one holding that whip being the one with authority to guide them where they go. And so after he makes this whip out of cords, intentionally focused on what he's doing, he drives the animals out. And then he has two more things. He drives animals out. He tells the people that have the doves. What's interesting is he doesn't go and like fling the doves doors open and say, be free, right? None of that. He says, you take those out of here. And then he goes to the money changers tables. He turns the the money changers table over and, and he empties the money. So when we see all of this, I I don't want us to see it, uh, uh, singularly in in righteous indignation, I think that there is that, but I I also want us to be sure that we're not seeing extemporaneous or frivolous, but we're seeing intentional and purposeful. And there are two ways that I have previously preached this text. Uh, And I think one of those ways I've preached at Covenant years ago. So just real quick, Uh, kind of connection because I think that these things are right, but there's a third way that I want to really engage in further today that I think draws into a deeper truth for us. And the first thing is uh, that that Jesus says, uh, uh, you've turned my father's house into a marketplace. And, And so this can be seen as a speech against The Father's house, the house of God being a marketplace. And I think that that's true. 
I think that whenever it turns into uh, a, a place that's focused on buying and selling rather than the purpose that we see in the Synoptic Gospels as it would be a house of prayer, I think that that, that that differentiation can have power and we need to hear that. That the church, the house of God, Jesus' father's house is not a marketplace, but it's a house of prayer. That it's to be focused on how we connect an intimate relationship with God. That the purpose of the people gathering in a singular location is so that we would be intimately connected with God. That's a true right statement and purposed through the text. The second is that, that I don't believe, uh, I believe that Jesus is specifically speaking against those who are leading the church, uh, becoming, um, uh, being profiteers on the sacrifices necessary for the people of God. What we don't know is what were the exchange rates they were offering for that currency in the temple? What was the, uh, uh, what was the cost of the animals, the cattle, the sheep, the doves at the temple compared to somewhere else? It's like this. Have you ever been to like a football game uh, downtown and the closer you get to the stadium, the more the parking costs, right? If you want to be right up next to the stadium, it's going to cost more. If you want to park way out in the boondocks, it will cost less. And so I wonder if there was some of that going on with regard to the animals, with regard to the money changing, that as they got closer to the temple, and now they're in the temple courts, the cow that they could have bought for one price there is now double. And so profiteering off of the sacrifices of the people of God is not holy. And I think Jesus is offering a critique on that. And, and I think that that's supported through the archaeological findings that the Levitical tribe and their neighborhood in Jerusalem from Jesus' day is opulent. The leaders of the temple were incredibly wealthy, and I think Jesus is speaking against that as well. Not a marketplace, but a house of prayer. That the leaders wouldn't be profiteering, but they would be faithful servants steward, stewarding the resources of God. But there's something more here. There's something more. So Jesus uh, has this encounter that I think drives us a few layers deeper after this sign, after he makes a whip out of reeds, after he turns over the money changers' tables, after he drives out the animals. The Jews come to him, and they ask him a specific question. They say, um, actually, they have a request uh, would you give us a sign in verse 18 that, that you could prove your authority through? What sign could you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? That's in verse 18. And I think that that's an important phrase because it helps us to understand what signs are in Scripture, particularly what signs are in the Gospel of John. If there is a sign... There is a deeper meaning. The sign is not only to be taken at face value, but the sign is also to articulate something deeper and richer for us to understand. And what the Jews are asking for is a sign that proves authority. A sign that proves authority. And then Jesus responds and he offers a sign, not a sign in the here and now, but a sign that is to come that we could testify to because we've read the gospel and we've received the good news. But in verse 19, Jesus answers them and says, destroy this temple 
and I'll raise it again in three days. Here's the sign. You destroy a temple and I'll raise the temple and I'll raise it in three days. And then uh, we have this commentary, this response first from the Jews and then a commentary from the gospel writing. First, the response from the Jews. It took 46 years to do this and you're going to do it in three days? We, we rebuilt in 46 years. You're going to rebuild in three days. You're crazy. Jesus, you're crazy. But then the commentaries in verse 22 says, after G, uh, excuse me, 21, it says, but the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. So Jesus offers a sign clearing out the temple. It has deeper meaning that we're still discovering together. And then the Jews ask for a sign and he says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And that has deeper meaning. And that meaning is connected to the original sign. What Jesus does is takes two signs, the first in the temple and the second in the temple of his body, and he has deeper meaning for both and he connects them together. And so how do we discover it? I'm gonna propose to you today that what Jesus is showing us, revealing to us in these signs is that he is replacing, not just refining, replacing the Jewish understanding of worship of the location of God, of the temple of God, of the sacrifice to God, and he is replacing it in himself and inviting us into a new way of worship, a new way of orientation. How would we get at this? Uh, the, the first comes to us in Jesus' answer in, in verse 9, uh, excuse me, in verse, uh, yeah, verse 19, in Jesus' answer to their question. It's really interesting. Uh, in verse 14 and verse 15, the word temple is, uh, in Greek and Aramaic, uh, the word heron, H-E-I-R-O-N, heron. And that is the same word that's used for the word temple in every other instance in the entire Gospel of John except what we have translated as temple in verse 19, 20, and 21. So they ask for a sign that proves authority. And he says, destroy this temple. He uses a different word, naos, N-A-O-S, naos. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Heron really focuses on a physical temple. Naos means literally the dwelling place of God. Okay. So, in the Jewish community, uh, and their understanding of this temple is that that is literally where God dwells, that they are going to make sacrifices to God, that they are going to meet with God there, that they're going to be made right with God there. And when Jesus comes, what he is saying is, now I am here, I am amongst you. And so no longer is this about this physical dwelling place in a physical location in this temple, but now I am here and God's dwelling place is 
in me and I am amongst you. And so now I'm going to cast out all of these things that show that, 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 that you think that God's dwelling is in this physical place. And I'm going to reorient it to your relationship with me from the beginning of the gospel. The difference between Heron and Naos. And it's also found in like the, the, the power of John's gospel. So they're living in this in-between time when Jesus comes. The temple was destroyed. They were exiled. The temple was rebuilt. And then Jesus comes. And so whenever he says destroy it, we can rebuild it. That has to be like don't let it be destroyed. We lived there before and we were in exile during that, the Babylonian exile, and it was awful. And we didn't know or understand how we could relate to God in that season. And so Jesus says, destroy it, I'll raise it up in three days. It rests with a deep pain for the people of God. But then what's even more interesting is when John is writing the gospel of John, it's, been, it's written and recorded in 90 CE, 9-0. is the last of the Gospels to be recorded. And what's most interesting about that in relationship to this text is the temple was destroyed again in 70 CE. 70. So John is writing to a people who have lost the temple location, the dwelling place of God perceived. And he's writing to that people and helping them understand that from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he already told you that that doesn't even matter anymore, that the temple can be destroyed because it's not a location anymore. Once God dwelt amongst them in the personhood of Jesus, now it's no longer about a location or a sacrifice or a place or a time. It's not, a, it's not about a ritual or a rule, but now it is, it is in Jesus, and Jesus is, is uh, embodying God's dwelling amongst the people, no longer, no longer the location that matters. And so the people could hear this word and they could feel God's comfort and God's compassion because they had thought that God's dwelling place had been destroyed, but God's dwelling place was in Jesus. And then one final kind of turn that helps us to understand this is in uh, the, the connection that the disciples had, the connection that John the Apostle had, but whenever he translates Jesus' uh, answer. So Jesus answers, destroy this temple, naos, dwelling place of God, and I'll raise it again in three days. And then in verse 21, the gospel writer says that the temple, the naos, the dwelling place of God, that Jesus had spoken of was his body, his body. And yes, it means his physical body, that his physical body would be resurrected after three days. But get this, all across the epistles and all across the early church, there's new language that has been formed for people that follow Jesus. People that follow Jesus are the body of Christ. We, the people of God, are the soma of Christ. So when John writes that whenever he is talking about temple, naos, dwelling place of God, and that it will be restored, he is saying that, that 
You are now the dwelling place of God, Soma. You, the body of Christ, are the dwelling place of God. Jesus enters into the temple on purpose, with intentional uh, thought, with preparation. He sits back and makes this whip accord. He offers this grand articulate sign that all of these sacrifices, even this location, all of this exchange, all of it can go away, all of it can pass away because what we need to know and what we are about is that Jesus now is the dwelling place of God. And when he is resurrected after the third day, then we as the body of Christ now contain his dwelling. We are the dwelling place of God. And if we can, can wrap our minds around the power, the transforming of work of what Jesus did from the very first of his ministry, it can translate power to the way we live and engage today. Because I want you to know that God doesn't dwell here in these four walls. God doesn't dwell in the 16,000 square feet of Covenant Methodist Church. God doesn't dwell on the five acres of this campus. God dwells in the body of Christ. God dwells in you. And Jesus came to announce it and to reframe it and refocus it so that the world might know that we didn't have to go on pilgrimage somewhere in order to connect with God, but God is able to connect with us living inside of us here and now today. You and I are God's dwelling place. And so whenever we walk out into the world and whenever we meet someone with the grace and love of Christ, we are extending God's dwelling to the world. And Jesus is reframing this because he wants Everyone to know, not just John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but he also wants you to know as his church, as his body, he's not just the savior of the world, he's the savior of the church. And we need a savior. So we need him to dwell in us so that we might be vessels of the spirit of God, uh, extending his dwelling everywhere we go. Jesus is inviting us to totally reframe our understanding so that the house of worship, the house of the Lord, is you and me. And together when we claim that authority the world will be transformed and we can testify this is on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, what a gift we receive when we receive your word, when we hear your truth in it, when we connect with it so fully and so beautifully understanding that your dwelling place is amongst us, your dwelling place is in us. Lord, we thank you for this truth. Help us to be a people that so fully desire you, so fully connect with you that you would be honored 
in the way in which we worship and the way in which we live. Let our lives be worship to you. Lord, dwell in us. Anoint us. Fill us. Use us. Be glorified in us. We pray this, trusting in you. Lord, as we enter into this time of offering, we pray that you would use these gifts and that you would use each who give an offering to you for your glory, that more would know the work, the work of your Son in us and through us, through these gifts. Lord, be glorified in them. Have your dwelling amongst us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.